from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello, Earthlings, and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I am Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scaff in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is Thursday, 27th of November. It's Thanksgiving 2014! Yeah, I feel like using some uh, sound effects today. Yeah, huh? Yeah, because it's Thanksgiving. Yeah, I guess you're right. Who cares? Yeah. So, anyway, um, on this show I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop, music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is. A brand new kid to show biz. With knowledge I persevere, but if I now do me a favor. favor. Let me in here. Then we can find a rhyme to fill in space and drop the bass with a taste of light. What is going on, people? What is going on? I'll tell you what's going on. It's Thanksgiving. I've had uh, a day off yesterday and another day off today, and I get the day off tomorrow, and then I have a weekend, which is awesome. I got a lot of papers to grade right here, but uh, you know what? That's all in the background right now. Um, just taking it easy and chilling out, and it's Thanksgiving, so uh, yeah, just taking it easy. I'm just taking it easy. Yesterday, I had a headache because I stayed up too late on Tuesday night. Actually, I stayed up too late on Monday night, and then it wasn't too bad on Tuesday when I had to teach, but then it catches up with me a day later, so yeah, that was a mistake. But that's because the news about Ferguson broke, and I had to stay up all night, not all night, but for an extra hour, and that'll do it. One hour will do it, really. Uh, Yeah, I had to stay up tweeting and reading people's tweets, and um, yeah, it was crazy. Anyway, uh, we'll talk about Ferguson after the break. Uh, the break, by which I mean when we get to the current events section. I don't have a take action thing, but you know what? I'm going to find one right now. You're going to see behind the uh, the veil here, people. I'm going to Amnesty International USA website right now. Eyes on Ferguson. Take action. Well, there you go. Duh. Why not? We should totally do that. So we'll do the take action is about Ferguson. And, uh, yeah. Uh, Amnesty International has a great... Uh, action about Ferguson that I just looked at for the first time. (laughs) Peaceful assembly, freedom of association, and freedom of expression are basic human rights. So, um, act now to demand that Missouri law enforcement comply with human rights standards and respect everyone's right to peaceful protest. Amen. So send that action, people. Why don't you? I mean, you know, whether you agree with the verdict or not, that's a basic human right about the freedom to assemble peacefully. Now, some people in Ferguson weren't assembling peacefully, but... That's no excuse for the police to go nuts and start tear gassing people and whatever. Anyway, um, I guess that's, oh, oh, the other, oh, hang on, people. Here comes some big news. Um, yeah. Then when I feel so stuffed I can't eat anymore, I just use the restroom. And then I can eat more. You should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. People need to know about the Wisconsin Writers Institute because I've been invited to speak at the Wisconsin Writers Institute. And I'm very happy. This is kind of a big deal for me. Um, yeah, they bring professional writers from around the country. And the woman who's organizing it uh, taught a workshop that I attended in the summer. And she had very nice things to say to me during that workshop. And then she said, hey, you should... Uh, you know, we, we want you at the Writers Institute. Send us some proposals for workshops. And I sent a few, and there were two that they were interested in. So I'm going to be giving a presentation on, uh, I call it, from, between Pollyanna and pessimism and how we find that balance of realism without veering off into the unrealistic, happy, everything's lovely, unrealistic, positive side, but also how we avoid veering off into the unrealistic, negative side, which, as I've said, I feel like Game of Thrones and The Last of Us veers into that territory. And I think that's a, a general problem our society has right now, is that everything's all gloom and doom and it all sucks and the world's going to end in the apocalypse. and blah. So anyway... Um, that's big news. And then the other one's going to be on sense of place, 
which I've been working on with my creative writing two class and other things. So, booyah, people! Uh, it's going to be awesome, and I'll tell you all about it when it happens. And if anyone's in the area and you really want to learn about writing for me, <laughs> oh boy. Uh, yeah, that's going to be cool. I can't wait for that. All right, let's talk about some current events. No good on Ferguson is the big news. So let me dispel any uncertainty about where I stand. Should have been an indictment. For those who don't know, this guy named Darren Wilson is a police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. And um, this guy named Michael Brown was walking in the middle of the street with a friend of his. And Darren Wilson came up and said, get out of the street. Now, uh, for whatever reason, Michael Brown and his friend did not get out of the street right away. And now's where the stories tend to diverge. Darren Wilson says that... Michael Brown came over to the cop car and started lunging into the cop car and went for Darren Wilson's gun. Uh, both sides of the discussion agree that the gun went off while Michael Brown was near the car, and then Michael Brown staggered back, and then Darren Wilson got out of the car and shot Michael Brown six times until he was dead. Um the the friend who was with Michael Brown said so Darren Wilson said the guy was charging at him Michael Brown uh, he said in his testimony to the grand jury that it felt like he was a five year old trying to hold on to Hulk Hogan and that he was viciously beaten by Michael Brown and uh, he felt like deadly force was the only thing he could use to subdue the guy and so that's what he said and that's what the grand jury believed and so that's why they did not indict him. Uh, Michael Brown's friend and a bunch of eyewitnesses say that that's not the way it went down. Uh, Michael Brown's friend said that the cop, first of all, pulled in front of them and then like backed up and basically pulled the car right next to them and like opened his door into Michael Brown kind of harshly. And then Michael Brown tussled with the guy and then he was trying to surrender. Uh, he may have had his arms out or up or whatever, but um, the autopsy says that there were no, there was no way that his hands were up, but his friend said maybe they were out or whatever. And some witnesses said that the cop shot him in the back. The autopsies, there were three of them. And they all said that there were no, there was no evidence of him being shot in the back. So the forensic evidence does not suggest that Michael Brown was shot in the back. However, um, the idea that he was shot to death six times uh, and the possibility that it may not have gone exactly like Darren Wilson says, I think leaves some really important questions that need to be answered. And I think a trial should have been held, you know, to answer them. Now, you know, I'm trying to be fair because I'm always trying to be fair. And, I, I, you know, I had some discussions with people who said, you know, this is the way the system works and, and, you know, we have to trust the process. And I, I, I understand that that's sort of how it goes. And sometimes you don't get the verdict you want, or, you know, you don't, you don't get the decisions from a grand jury that you want. However, a, there's a lot of evidence that the prosecuting attorney did not, uh, bring the case in the most fair way possible. And certainly not in the way that, um, the grand jury presentations usually go. In other words, there's a saying in the law profession, apparently, that you can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. And the translation is that, you know, any prosecuting attorney who needs one can get an indictment. Uh, the question is, you know, would it have brought a, a conviction? Well, I don't know. Look, I don't think you should only ever bring a grand jury indictment if you know you're going to get a conviction. Um... I think part of what a trial does for a democracy is it lets us sort of have a full accounting of what happened. And, you know, it's not going to be perfect. It's, you know, and a lot of people said, well, the, the, you know, Michael Brown case, the Darren Wilson indictment, there's no, you know, there were a lot of conflicting testimony and there's no way we're going to get a, you know, an eyewitness, you know, not an eyewitness, but a, but a perfect uh, objective account of what happened. And that's true, but that's part of why a trial is important. So we can get all this stuff out on the table and you can have experts examine the testimony compared to the forensic evidence and all the rest of it. So I just feel like this was a big mistake. And the other part that I want people to understand is that this is part of a pattern. We see unarmed men, especially on our black men, shot to death by police all the time. Just this week, we saw another dude in Brooklyn named Akai Gurley get shot to death, and that was an accident. The police said it was an accident, and, you know, the dude was a rookie cop, and he was trying to open a door with the same gun hand he had his gun in or something, and it's a disgrace, you know. Now, I have no idea what's going to happen with that guy. I hope he'll be 
you know, I don't know. It's it's not intent to kill, so maybe manslaughter or something. I mean, this is something horribly wrong that the police have done. And I think that when that happens, there needs to be a consequence, right? Look, if I go into a liquor store with no intent of hurting anybody and I accidentally shoot the clerk to death, I'm going to go to jail. Or even if I'm not, you know, if I if I accidentally shoot someone, that, not when I'm committing a crime. You know, because, okay, the better comparison, police aren't committing a crime, sworn to serve and protect. But but that's the other part of it, right? This police are sworn to serve and protect. And if they're murdering unarmed black men all the time, they're not serving them and they're not protecting them. And some people would say, well, that's the point. The police aren't there to serve and protect the black community. They're, serve, they're there to serve and protect other communities, especially the white community. And that's why we need more black cops and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In any case, uh, I was really frustrated about how, what went out in Ferguson, and I wore all black to school the next day because that's how I let the man know that I wasn't happy. Uh, and there was a protest in Madison, and I posted pictures of that on my Facebook wall, so I'm sure people have already seen that. And uh, yeah, so there's that thing that happened. And also, since last we spoke, uh, the U.S. had midterm elections. Woohoo! And the Republicans regained control of the Senate. Oh, yeah! And. Okay, so what does it mean? And Scott Walker got reelected here in Wisconsin. Boo. So what does all of this mean? Okay, first of all, it means money talks because I'm, I haven't looked at the numbers, but I'm quite certain that you know the people who spent the most probably won. And the other thing is that the, the people who voted for Republicans voted for them only because they wanted a change, right? And they want to change because they're convinced that, well, okay, look, hang on a second. There was a report from the BBC I heard where they were interviewing people who voted, and a lot of people voted Republican, and they asked them why, and they said, well, I'm not happy with the way the economy's working. And the person said, well, you know, the stock market's doing well, the unemployment's down, and she said, yeah, but it's not affecting most of us, regular, everyday people. Now, I agree with that, and I don't blame her for being angry about that. And so, yeah, you want to cast a protest vote? It makes sense. Now, the idea that Republicans are going to do something for regular, ordinary people is ludicrous. And I would urge that woman to say regular working people. Because the real problem here is that, and this has been going on since, you know, 1980, coincidentally enough, as Bill Hicks said. The problem is that since 1980, we've seen profits go through the roof the stock market's been exploding every year breaking new records um productivity's gone up efficiency's gone up but the wages of workers have gone stagnant and most people can't survive and feed their families on a regular 40-hour work week right this minimum wage hasn't gone up in almost a decade i think and if it had kept up with inflation, the minimum wage would be like $20 an hour right now. But every time we start talking about the minimum wage going up, everybody in the world, you know, all the rich, powerful people go, oh, unemployment will spike. We'll have a huge problem. The economy will collapse. Now, they don't ever say the economy is going to have a problem if the CEOs are making 500 times what the average worker makes. But And that's an exaggeration. I think it's like 200 times or whatever. But um, that is a problem, and... That's, you know, the real problem is that not that we don't have the wealth, but that the wealth hasn't been going to ordinary working people. So how does this have to do with the midterm elections? Well, we're going to just see more of the same. And in fact, it's probably going to get worse, you know, because it gets slightly worse under Republicans than it does under Democrats. But I don't blame people for feeling like the Democrats aren't speaking to their needs because they're not. And part of the reason is because Citizens United and other Supreme Court decisions and other legislation, forms of legislation, have made it impossible for elected officials to stand up to big money because they need big money in order to get elected. So Elizabeth Warren is an outlier in this regard. Tammy Baldwin, you know, if you have a really hardcore base of progressive individuals who will fund you, um, maybe you can talk smack about Wall Street. But most elected officials, they can't do that. And they won't do that. That's the other thing I want people to understand. We talk about corruption. And part of what, you know, the challenge to the Citizens United that has come before the Supreme Court had to do with people saying, well, this is going to lead to corruption. And Zephyr Teachout is a woman who was on um, the Bill Moyers show recently. And she has an interesting book out about corruption in the United States. And people think that, so the Supreme Court said, look, the problem, the only problem with corruption is that you might have a company or a super PAC or whatever giving an elected official a bribe and then they say, okay, we want this piece of legislation to pass in in exchange for our bribe. That's not the way it happens. The way it happens is 
the people with money go looking for people running for office who already believe the things they believe. This is why, for me, it's not a question about, like, cynicism. People are like, oh, you think that George W. Bush doesn't really believe. He really believes the things he says. It doesn't matter to me. I'm not interested in whether someone really believes what they think or not. The problem is nobody else really shares that particular view or that perspective on that issue. And so what happens is, the you know, look, most, for instance, you know, somebody running for the House of Representatives, let's say wherever you live, your hometown, right? They're running for the House of Representatives and they might say, you know, three things you agree with and then they have 10 views that you don't share. But those three things are important to you. And, you know, maybe another issue might be more important, but, but the big money interests just funnel all this cash into their election campaigns and then they can run these ads that push the hot button issues. Oh, this person loves Obama and you hate Obama because of Ebola, right? Or whatever it is. And gay marriage. Uh, and it's going to take away your guns. And then people get all worked up about these things that they're not most important to them, but we get diverted from the real issues and we get convinced that, you know, these ads keep running all the time and they affect us. So that's the nature of the corruption is that the, the companies and the, the people with all the money and wealth and power fund the individuals who already agree with them and then they get into office. Of course they're going to do the bidding of the people with the money. And and they don't have to, you know, make sure that they, you know, pay enough money to get this person to vote for them because it's already un- assumed that they're going to be opposed to regulation, which means you'll have more monopolies and trusts coming about. So, um, yeah, that's my view on the midterm elections. And not, not much is really going to change. We'll see things get slightly worse. Uh, we're seeing this brouhaha with immigration. And you all know how I feel about immigration. It's a round planet. I don't understand why we're so mad at people from other countries. Especially when, look, I live in Wisconsin. I don't hate people from Illinois, right? Why would I, right? Minnesota, okay. We're all Americans, right? Okay, now let's expand that consciousness to say, hey, wait. Look, I don't have much different between me and someone in Canada, right? Right. We're all North Americans. And same is true about people from Mexico. We're all North Americans. Okay, let's expand that consciousness even further and say, look, I don't have any real difference with people from Belize or Bolivia or wherever. Uh, and, and so we're all Americans, North, South America, whatever. Let's expand that consciousness again. We're all Earthicans, as Chuck D says. So, you know, really, we got to get over this whole notion of and, and look, I, some people have said, and I, I will take their word for it, that, you know, nation states can't just vanish and that we still have, you know, the need for nation states um, in order to protect certain economies and, you know, yada, yada, yada. I understand. You know, I'm not saying we should do away with states, but the idea that me and someone from Minnesota are enemies and we shouldn't let them into Wisconsin is just silly, right? It's a round world. We're all humans. We need to share all the wealth and bounty that we have as humans with each other. We're all one human family. So this stuff about immigration and amnesty and all this is just, I find it really silly. Um, yeah, and Scott Walker might run for president. <laughs> I can't wait. Please run for president, Scott Walker. Then journalists around the United States can demonstrate your buffoonery the same way they did with uh, Sarah Palin. And Scott Walker will be the newest butt of the joke when he starts talking about Becky, 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 Stan, Stan. And I know that wasn't Sarah Palin. That was Herman Cain. Um, but I just think it would be so entertaining and the whole country could really get a good look at this dingus who's in the governor's mansion. And uh, I know he's going to do bad things now that he's running for president because he's trying to show that he's got his conservative bona fides. And I'm really insulted that the fact that the only, you know, the reason he's a hero to the conservative movement is because he crushed my union. And I'm sorry, that ticks me off. And I don't think that's fair. And I think that people need to know the truth about what that has meant for us. Uh, teachers have really been hurting, and I've been hurting as a result of his decisions and the cuts to education that he's brought in and the cuts to all sorts of other programs. It it makes me sick, and it really hurts me to see people celebrating that in the same way that I'm sure Jamie Dimon looks at Elizabeth Warren and is like, I can't believe she'd say such hurtful things. But you know what? He can take it. He's He's doing all right. So it's not even a fair equivalency there. The other big loser in the midterm election, besides us, the people, was Scott Brown. 
<laughs> He's the one who lost to Elizabeth Warren in Massachusetts, and then he moved to some other state and tried to run for Senate there, and he lost again. <laughs> I hate Scott Brown so much. Uh, one example of why I hate him is because he, he has this whole thing about this pickup truck, and he's like, I drive a pickup truck. I'm like Sam Walton, and I drive a pickup truck. He doesn't talk like that, but whatever. Anyway, turns out he, his family bought the pickup truck so that he could transport his daughter's pony around. So there's no, it's not like, oh, I'm on the farm just hauling some lumber or whatever. No, it's for your pony, for your rich daughter to ride around on. And I think it's ridiculous that he's got this pickup truck and he's pretending like he's just a down-home country boy from the rural part of the country. And he's not. It's a fake pickup truck. So get back in your fake pickup truck and go home, Scott Brown. And then the pig castrating lady, I have no idea what her name was, but there's this woman. If you're not in the United States, you probably haven't heard of this woman. Let me find the ad. Hang on a all right, here it is. Her name is Joni Ernst. Here's the ad, 30 seconds. I'm Joni Ernst. I grew up castrating hogs on an Iowa farm. <laughs> so when I get to Washington, I'll know how to cut pork. Get it? Cut Joni pork? Joni Ernst, mother, soldier, conservative. My parents taught us to live within our means. It's time to force Washington to do the same. To cut wasteful spending, There's repeal pictures of pigs. and balance the budget. I'm Joni Ernst, and I approve this message because Washington's full of big spenders. Let's make them squeal. <laughs> Let's castrate them. Unbelievable. And I, she lost, so. <laughs> I think she lost. Wait, let me find out if she lost or not. Joni Ernst. Uh, Joni Ernst. I don't know. Did she win? She did win. Oh, God, she won. I guess I just put her in the show notes because I wanted to make fun of her. But she won. So uh, she defeated Bruce Braley, her Democratic opponent. Oh, my goodness. Uh, economic issues. At Ernst opposes the federal minimum wage and argues that states should have the sole authority to set their own minimum wages. Oh, my goodness. I think 725 is appropriate for Iowa. Oh my God! Let's see you work for 7:25, lady. Give me a break. God, it makes me so mad. All right, let's move on to something that will make me less mad: fracking. Ha! <laughs> In Texas, traffic deaths climb amid fracking boom. I also saw something recently about Black Friday deaths. Black Friday is tomorrow. Well, it's actually today in some cases. This makes me sick. Before we move on to fracking, I gotta say something about this Black Friday nonsense. I'm I'm horrified by the whole consumption hyper consumerism thing. There was a great Bloom County car- cartoon back in the day, uh, comic strip where Opus bought some mall walkers, which were a real sneaker in the 80s. And the idea was you wear them when you go walking around the mall, like you need special shoes for walking around the mall. And that's where Milo explained to him and explained to me the concept of runaway consumerism, whereby everybody's basic needs are so thoroughly met that they have we uh, you know we end up spending our money on completely ridiculous stuff we don't need. And that's what happens on Black Friday. It's it's this whole like frenzy people get into and and everyone's just convinced that like you have to do it. Like, you know, cuz you have to save money and you have to save money because you have to buy all these gifts and you have to buy all these gifts cuz that's what people do at Christmas. People don't give people gifts at Christmas. You know, I I mean, there are ways around this. Give people gifts at Halloween maybe. You know, we could just start we could just start by like shifting the gifts. Buy gifts for people just in general, right? Like I buy gifts for Diane all the time. And so if we do that, then it doesn't become this thing where you have to show you love someone at Christmas by giving them stuff. I and ever anybody asks me what I want for my birthday or Christmas, I'm like nothing. Please don't get me anything. I've got everything I need, anything I want I can get for myself. Give me the gift of you know what I want? This is true. You know what I want? Christmas, birthday, anytime. What I want is time. I want this Thanksgiving break is so blessed and beautiful because I get to have time to relax, to play video games, to sit and watch Dirty Rock reruns and Simpsons and Futurama. I get to just do nothing. It's so wonderful. This is what I want is to do nothing. And I think that's what a lot of people want. But the sad thing is, again, economic factors force people to work. I started, I almost started crying when I listened to my students talk about their Thanksgiving break because some of them aren't having a break. Some of them were like, I have to work 40 hours over Thanksgiving break. They had to work a full work week between Wednesday and Sunday. 
And that means working all day Friday, and some of them had to work on Thursday evening. Thanksgiving, that's the thing. Black Friday is bleeding into Thanksgiving. And and Walgreens and Kmart are open at like 7 a.m. Walgreens open right now. I'm recording this at 9 a.m. on Thanksgiving Day. Walgreens is open. There are people who have to be at Walgreens and and selling people flip-flops and shit. Or maybe not even, who knows what they're selling. I just think it's such a disgrace. And I think that we shouldn't go camping out. And I had students who were like, oh, I love Black Friday. I get to camp out with my family and we get together time on, you know, they... Camping out outside of Best Buy. I'm like, you people, come on. This is sick. And then people have to work all night because you know, they're open till 2 a.m. and stuff. And it's for what? Because you want to save $50 on a DVD player or whatever. Come on. Give me a break. This is disgusting. This is, this is, this is the pathology of modern America. And I'm sure it's coming to other countries, so don't think you're safe from this, UK people. Um... But this is the pathology. Fine. How about this? This is the pathology of late global capitalism. You know, the idea that like what we we all recognize that what we need is time and leisure and togetherness. But we are so convinced that we have to buy, 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 buy that we throw away that time because we're we, what's more important apparently is to camp out in front of Best Buy and save fifty dollars on a Blu-ray or whatever it is. It's just really depressing to me, and uh, I wish more people could re remember the what's really important, right? Because ultimately, what's really important is health and being around people you care about and having time to do nothing. Leisure is the Article Twenty Four of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and I think that a lot of people don't take advantage of leisure, and a lot of people can't. I understand. Look, some people choose to go out and consume way too much and you know they work harder in order to get extra money that they don't need to buy crap they don't want um and you know a lot of parents are working all the time and they don't have time to spend time with their kids and so they give them guilt you know money and guilt presents and stuff and as jesse jackson said your kids need your presence more than your presence which i love that phrase and I know that some people, on the other hand, are like squeezed economically, so they have to work a lot and, and, and they don't have time to have leisure time and stuff. And I think both of those suck. So to the degree to which you can minimize the things in your life that require you to go out and buy and run around consuming and, you know, constantly giving gifts to people, um, you know, I would say resist that and, and find ways to give that, you know, maybe donation to worthy causes. You don't have to go out on Black Friday to do that, right? So, and it's just as good a gift. They don't need that DVD collection or whatever it is. You're, I'm obsessed with the DVDs. People don't even buy DVDs anymore. Hello. I'm sorry, obsessed person who's talking weird. You should be sorry. You're stupid. You don't know anything about how the world works. God, moron. Anyway, um, yeah, okay, moving on. Let's talk about fracking. Fracking. In Texas, traffic deaths climb amid fracking boom. And this is from NPR. The death toll on Texas highways has been falling for decades as car companies build safer vehicles. But that trend shifted into reverse as the boom in fracking began to heat up. Get it? Boom in fracking? (laughs) The Texas Department of Transportation says that between 2009 and 2013, the state's traffic fatalities rose by 8%, even as those in most other states continued to fall. And the deaths linked to commercial vehicle crashes like trucks soared by more than 50% over the same period. The boom has triggered a huge demand for both tractor trailers and drivers. So fracking increases. They need more people to drive these big trucks. Uh, Quote, people who have never been in the seat of a truck before go to school for two weeks and they graduate and now they're a truck driver, you know, says Larry Busby, the longtime sheriff of Live Oak County in the Eagle Ford Shale region of South Texas. Well, they're not a truck driver yet. They've just passed the school. Oh, yeah, and I was going to say, Black Friday, I've seen these reports in the past few years, there have been, like, several deaths of people who, they were up all night, they got, like, three hours of sleep and 24 hours, and Black Friday, their car was full of presents and products they had bought, and and so they crammed their kids into, like, too many many kids in one seat, and so they didn't have seatbelts for them all, and then the dad was exhausted, so he fell asleep driving or whatever, and he wasn't paying attention, and then the car crashed, and the kids weren't seatbelted in, and so the people died. That's sick. That's a sign that our society is obsessed with shopping, and it's killing people. We need to change something. But people go, no, he's just an idiot. He didn't deserve to die. Ugh. So, 
Uh, yeah, fracking. Bleh. Um, ISIS. Oof. ISIS has kind of died down lately. We don't hear much about ISIS anymore. Just like we don't hear about Ebola, which is weird because ISIS continues to run roughshod over the Middle East and Ebola continues to kill people in uh, Sierra Leone and Liberia and other parts of West Africa. But suddenly it's not affecting people in the U.S. anymore, so let's stop caring about it. Makes me sick. God, come on. Anyway, uh, I remember saying when we started talking about arming rebels in Syria and dropping bombs on ISIS, I said, you know what? It's possible that we might make things worse. And you know what? Maybe we are making things worse. And here's how. There is an article in uh, Democracy Now! had a headline, Pentagon confirms Islamic State got U.S. arms drop. The Pentagon has confirmed Islamic State militants got one of the bundles of arms it attempted to airdrop to Kurdish forces. The bundle included small arms and hand grenades. The Pentagon said the wind caused it to shift off course. Now, again, this is an accident, but but now the Islamic State has more weapons and they shouldn't have more weapons, and certainly not weapons from us, but now they have some of our weapons. That's not good. That's making things worse. Um, meanwhile, Afghan villagers say NATO airstrike killed seven civilians. This is also from Democracy Now! Villagers in the Afghan province of Paktia say a NATO airstrike has killed seven civilians, including a nine-year-old child. The villagers said they were gathering firewood at the time of the strike. A spokesperson for the U.S.-led coalition confirmed a, quote, precision airstrike in the area, which he said killed eight, quote, enemies. But Abdul Wali Sahi, the province's deputy governor, said the villagers brought the corpses of seven civilians to the provincial capital. He said, quote, the local villagers claim they were collecting firewood on a mountainside when they were hit by the airstrike. As you can see, there are children among the dead bodies. The Afghan nation is tired of such killings. We are going to seriously investigate this incident, and we strongly condemn such a killing, and whoever committed this crime must be held accountable for their action. End quote. This month marks the 13th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. Over the weekend, hundreds of people marched in the Afghan capital, Kabul, to protest an agreement to keep 10,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan beyond this year. Former President Hamid Karzai had previously refused to sign the deal in part over the killing of Afghan civilians. End quote. So, as I've said before, look, this is one of the things that causes people to support ISIS. ISIS wouldn't be able to get anybody to, to lick envelopes if the United States weren't bombing civilians, right? Because, and it's not intentional, I don't think we're intentionally going after civilians, but to, to the people who support ISIS, that's irrelevant. The point is, flying U.S. robots kill their f- community members, and sometimes their family. And, you know, look, I support peaceful protests when people or innocent civilians are killed, but how often are they expected to just strongly condemn such a killing and ask for a serious investigation until you say, you know what, this isn't doing anything. This isn't stopping the killing of civilians. Uh, and and it's very easy for us to be like, well, they should peacefully protest and we'll try not to kill civilians with our flying robots. But you know what? At a certain point, people... I mean, think about if China had flying robots in the United States and occasionally trying to kill, you know, crazy people who are going to kill people, if occasionally they killed innocent civilians at a school or a wedding or whatever. I mean, we'd go nuts. We wouldn't take that for five seconds. But we expect them to take it all their lives? It's, it doesn't, it, no, I'm sorry. We want to stop ISIS. The first thing we need to do is stop killing people with flying robots. And, and that means that we won't be able to kill as many terrorists. Okay, but you know what? I've always said killing terrorists doesn't do anything anyway. All we do is make more terrorists. Right? So even when, even if we killed zero civilians, it still wouldn't be fixing the problem. You don't stop terrorism by killing people with flying robots. God. All right. Um, the uh, New York Times has stopped allowing people to copy and paste their text, which I think is weird, but whatever. Um, so I have to read this right off of the thing. Okay, so there's this guy named uh, Lieutenant Dan, Lieutenant General Dan Bolger on Democracy Now! And he was a really interesting guy. I'm going to play you an excerpt of what he said uh, on Democracy Now! And um, he had a piece in the New York Times called The Truth About the Wars. And he had a really interesting perspective. So let me read the first few paragraphs of this. As a senior commander in Iraq and Afghanistan, I lost 80 soldiers. Despite their sacrifices and those of thousands more, all we have to show for it are two failed wars. This fact eats at me every day, and Veterans Day is tougher than most. 
As vet he t wrote this around Veterans Day, November 11th. As veterans, we tell ourselves it was all worth it. The grim butchery of war hovers out of sight and out of mind, an unwelcome guest at the dignified ceremonies. Instead, we talk of devotion to duty and noble sacrifice. We salute the soldiers at o Omaha Beach, the sailors at Late Gulf, the airmen in the skies over Berlin, and the marines at the Chosen Reservoir, and we're not wrong to do so. The military thrives on tales of valor. In our volunteer armed forces, such stirring examples keep bringing young men and women through the recruiters' door. As we used to say in the 1st Cavalry Division, they want to, quote, live the legend. In the military, we love our legends. Here's a legend that's going around these days. In 2003, the United States invaded Iraq and toppled a dictator. We botched the follow-through, and a vicious insurgency erupted. Four years later, we surged in fresh troops, adopted improved counterinsurgency tactics, and won the war. And then dithering American politicians squandered the gains. It's a compelling story. But it's just that. A story. The surge in Iraq did not win anything. It bought time. It allowed us to kill some more bad guys and feel better about ourselves. But in the end, shackled to a corrupt sectarian government in Baghdad and hobbled by our fellow Americans' unwillingness to commit to a fight lasting decades, the surge just forestalled today's stalemate. Like a handful of aspirin gobbled by a fevered patient, the surge cooled the symptoms, but the underlying disease didn't go away. The remnants of al-Qaeda in Iraq and the Sunni insurgents we battled for more than eight years simply reemerged this year as the Islamic State, known as ISIS. So that's from the piece he wrote in the Washington, uh, New York Times. And then here's a clip from him on Democracy Now! How did the U.S. lose the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? I think the, the simplest way to say it is that we, we misapplied the forces of our armed forces. We didn't use them in the way that they're trained and prepared. You, you know, Senator, now Secretary Chuck Hagel, a Vietnam veteran, like his brother, served together in the 9th Infantry Division of Vietnam. His statement there is very powerful. You've got to have a public debate before you commit American military forces. We did have that after 9-11, but it was very rushed. We had that again in 2002 before we went into Iraq. We never continued the debate. The initial phases of both wars went successfully from a military standpoint, but we never followed it up by having a discussion. Is it appropriate to send thousands of young American men and women into foreign countries to go house to house and try and sort out who's a terrorist, who's a villager? That, that's something we tried in Southeast Asia, and it, it didn't work. And yet we repeated it once in Afghanistan and then again in Iraq. And, and that's, that's very disturbing. And I think that led directly to our failure in both campaigns. The surge in Iraq? The, the surge in Iraq was a, the word is what it means. A surge is a temporary measure. And it was a temporary increase in troops. Uh, the best way I would sort of use an analogy is if, if a patient is ill and has a fever, you can give them a lot of aspirin and bring the temperature down. But when you stop giving the aspirin, the underlying fever is still there. So the surge in Iraq gave some temporary relief. And then we did a surge in Afghanistan as well in 2009, 10, 11. But but it wasn't permanent, and it didn't solve the underlying problem, which is to say that both countries have an insurgency, and the solution to those insurgencies, if there's going to be a solution, rests in the hands of the Iraqis and the Afghans. So this is something that I said, um, and he said later in the thing, I copied something else he said later on, uh, quote, we're very good at conventional wars. In fact, we're so good at it that myself and other commanders thought this time we're going to fight Vietnam and get it right because our quality young men and women, so brave, so tough, so well supported by the American people with equipment, training, their families. We thought this time we're going to pull it off. And we miss the fundamental strategic error of that thought. And it's an error based in arrogance, hubris, whatever word you want to use. And that is, by their nature, when a country is having a problem with rebels or with insurgents, the solution must lie with the local people. End quote. So this is something that I said in 2008. I wrote a piece called There Is No War in Iraq on my blog. And I said, in 2008, there is no war in Iraq. There is an occupation, there is an insurgency, and there is a counterinsurgency. The distinction is crucial. There are laws of occupation which differ from the laws of war. The difference is also important to our society as well as Iraqi society. People feel differently about occupations than they do about wars. Now, end quote. That's what I wrote in 2008. It is so nice to hear Lieutenant General Bolger confirm this, not because I want to brag about how right I was, although I will, <laughs> no, 
because it ins- it assures me that I'm not insane when I say things that everyone else seems to disagree with. I even had friends in the military get mad with me when I said that, but I stand by it. And it's the, it's not an academic distinction. I'm not just saying this because like, well, here's a technical point. Me, 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 me. It's not like a grammar mistake. I'm not just being like, well, I'm pedantic and I know a thing and I want to prove that I know it. Me. No, this is about the way we see the world. And we have to start these discussions with understanding things as they are, calling them by their real names, okay? And the the power of storytelling is that it can blind us to the truth about what's happening in a place and prevent us from understanding why other people see things differently, right? And whether it's Ferguson or Syria or Iraq, we have to start with why are the people setting that thing on fire doing so? And in the case of Ferguson, it's because of the pattern of police brutality that keeps black people in a state of constant fear, harassment, and violence. And in the case of Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan, it's because people don't like being occupied. And there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, a struggle going on against American hegemony. And as I've said before, if you don't know the word hegemony, you can't understand what's going on in the Middle East and South Asia. The, the, the point is that, you know, the part of the mythology and the storytelling that we tell ourselves, as Mr. Bolger points out, Lieutenant General Bolger points out, is that it's, it, it, it can blind us to the truth. And we have to tell the truth about what's going on in those places and how we've tried to approach it and why those strategies didn't work. All right. Moving on. Speaking of the police, uh, Frank Serpico uh, is a really interesting dude. There's a movie. Al Pacino played this guy in a movie about a cop who was not going to be corrupt, and people were offering him bribes, and he said no to the bribes. And then he got in trouble because the cops didn't have his back because he was trying to report their corruption. And, and um, you know, it was drug dealers paying off cops and stuff like that. And he didn't like that. And he felt like it was making the community less safe. And so he stood up against the corruption. And then cops felt like he was betraying them. And his story is very interesting. You should learn about Frank Serpico if you don't know about him. So you can start by watching the Al Pacino movie. But then you should also learn about what the movie exaggerates and did wrong and whatever. But anyway, he wrote a piece very recently called The Police Are Still Out of Control, I Should Know, by Frank Serpico. And... I was just going to quote one paragraph, but then I kept finding bits to read out. You should really read the whole thing. It's in Politico. I will link to it on my site. And I guess I didn't mention the site at the start of the show, but it is fbesp.org, the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org, and uh, fbesp.org slash synapse for my website. And, um, yeah, you get to the main website, and you can get to the blog website very quickly. Anyway, um. His article is awesome. You should totally read the whole thing. Here are some quotes from Frank Serpico. With all due respect to today's police officers doing their jobs, they don't need all that army equipment anyway. He talked about the the phenomenon recently of police departments getting army surplus stuff and using tanks and armored personnel carriers and, you know, this really heavy weaponry to try to go after drug dealers and, you know, the people in the community who are committing crimes. And, you know, look, it's a losing discussion. You can't, I can't tell police like, oh, you shouldn't be using an armored personnel carrier when you do a drug bust. I can't tell them what they should do to stay safe because I'm not the one who has to go and do these drug busts. And there might be people in the house with guns and, you know, they want to be safe. Okay. I I can't tell them, like, this is wrong, you know, you could be just as safe without it. Um, But that doesn't give them carte blanche to do whatever they want, right? I mean, look, if they just blew up the house, they would be taking care of the drug dealers and it would be a lot safer for the cops, right? But we've said as a society, you can't do that. So that's an example of one of the lines we've drawn. Now let's think about other lines that we need to draw as well. Okay, so Frank Serpico says they don't need all that army stuff anyway. When I was a cop, I disarmed a man with three guns who had just killed someone. I was off duty, and all I had was my snub nose from Smith & Wesson. I fired a warning shot, the guy ran off, and I chased him down. Some police forces still maintain a high threshold for violence. I remember talking with a member of the Italian Carabinieri, who are known for being very heavily armed. He took out his Beretta and showed me that it didn't even have a magazine inside. You know, I gotta be careful, he said. Before I shoot somebody unjustifiably, I'm better off shooting myself. End quote. They have standards. That's a powerful sentiment. I don't think Darren Wilson feels that way. I think he feels like, dude was coming at me, I had to shoot him dead. 
in the NYPD, it used to be you'd fire two shots and then you would assess the situation. You didn't go off like a madman and empty your magazine and reload. Today, it seems, these police officers just empty their guns and automatic weapons without thinking in acts of callousness or racism. All right, now here's he's getting into race, and this is important. Many white Americans, indoctrinated by the ridiculous number of buddy cop films and police-themed TV shows that Hollywood has cranked out over the decades, almost all of them portraying police as heroes, may be surprised by the continuing outbursts of anger, the protests in the street against the police that they see in inner-city environments like Ferguson. But often, they don't understand that these minority communities, in many cases, view the police as the enemy. We want to believe that cops are good guys, but let's face it, any kid in the ghetto knows different. The poor and the disenfranchised in society don't believe those movies. They see themselves as the victim, and they often are. End quote. Now, the other thing I would point out, and I think he makes this point in the argument, that in the article, that if you arm yourselves with, you know, stun grenades and and riot shields and armored personnel carrier, and you think of yourself as a police officer as being like a soldier in a war, then you see the community that you're sworn to serve and protect as the enemy. And you see yourself as an occupying soldier. And then any random black guy in the street then is the enemy and you if they give you any lip they're trying to start something and you have to deal with them and anything you want to do or anything you feel you have to do in pursuit of that mission is okay and that's not a good way for our police to act that's not a good way for our police to think of themselves and that's not a fair way for them to think of the people in the community they're supposed to be serving and protecting end of rant all right Um, One last thing about um, police is uh, I mentioned that there had been a guy in Brooklyn who had been shot and killed by the police. And this is the article from the New York Times. I guess I copied it by hand. Um, uh, Officers errant shot kills unarmed Brooklyn man. And the paragraph just ends in a stunning way. So here's the paragraph. Uh, the, The guy who shot him is a guy named Officer Lang. Officer Lang is left handed and he tried to turn the knob of the door that opens to the stairwell with that hand while also holding the gun according to a high ranking police official who was familiar with the investigation and who emphasized that the account could change. I didn't know we could do that. Look, officer, I didn't rob that bank, but let me emphasize that the account could change. Well, I guess some accounts already did change when someone took all that money out of them. Ha! <laughs> Hillary Clinton's Wall Street problem. We're almost done with the current events here, people. 50 minutes in, I know. Hillary Clinton's Wall Street problem. Uh, this is from Washington Post. Over the past week, the usual, re- usually redoubtable Hillary Clinton has comported herself like a leaf in a storm. Last Friday, campaigning in Boston for Democratic gubernatorial candidate Martha Coakley, Clinton not only praised Elizabeth Warren, the Massachusetts senator who has won a devoted following as the scourge of big banks, she sounded like her. Quote, I love watching Elizabeth give it to those who deserve it, Clinton said. She touted Coakley for her presumably Warren attributes. Quote, she stood up to the big national banks that tried to trick and trap and cheat our families. Warming to the topic, Clinton continued in an unaccustomed populist vein. Don't let anybody tell you that, you know, it's corporations and businesses that create jobs. You know that old theory, trickle-down economics, that has been tried, that has failed, end quote. Problem is, some of Clinton's long-standing supporters run those big banks. On Monday, at a campaign stop in New York, the Democrats' presumative presidential frontrunner rephrased Quote, our economy grows when businesses and entrepreneurs create good-paying jobs here in America where workers and families are empowered to build from the bottom up and the middle out. End quote. <laughs> this is why I don't trust Hillary Clinton and I will not vote for her as president. I'm not going to vote for Hillary Clinton if she runs for president, I don't think. Probably not. Um, I mean, I voted for Obama against Romney, I think. Yeah, because it was so close and I'm in a swing state. So... You know, uh, but I voted for Nader in 2000 in Florida. And I, I'm tired of seeing my vote taken for granted. And I, Hillary Clinton was once on the board of directors at Walmart. And she, like her husband, believe in policies that generally favor big corporations. And you know what? I'm sorry to say it. So does Obama. Okay. One of the number one thing. Look, when the as soon as the midterm elections w- results were announced, and the smoke cleared, and everybody could stop talking about the horse races, people started saying, okay, what is the Senate going to do? What is the House, and what is Congress going to do? And what are they likely to achieve 
that Obama agrees with them on. And the number one thing people started talking about was the TPP, which is the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And it is this new NAFTA-style trade deal, which makes it a illegal barrier to free trade if you have a minimum wage or if you have environmental standards. And as I've said a billion times on this show, that is a murder sentence for working people because it means that, you know, suddenly in Bangladesh, when they started enacting new laws for protecting workers after that factory collapsed, suddenly, if the Trans-Pacific Partnership goes through and if Bangladesh signs on to it, then those safety assurances will be a barrier to free trade, and they're going to have to do away with them. We saw this with NAFTA. We see this with GATT. We saw this with the TRIPS agreement. We saw it with the MAI. We see it all the time all over the world. These trade agreements are bad for workers. They're bad for the environment. They're bad for people in the U.S. They're bad for people in other countries, and they're good for the corporations that exploit them. So the fact that Obama and the new Republican Congress are buddy-buddy hug time on this issue makes me convinced that the Democrats, generally speaking, aren't going to do what's best for uh, the working people of the country. And that makes me sick because I want a real alternative. And Bernie Sanders might run for president and he would totally have my vote because he's awesome. Anyway, that's the end of the discussion about current events. Let's talk about some economics. And I know what you're saying. You've been talking about economics for the past 10 minutes. Well, I'm going to talk about it some more. Prosecutors suspect repeat offenses on Wall Street. This is from the New York Times. What a shock that more crime is happening on Wall Street. Whoever would have guessed. It would be the Wall Street equivalent of a parole violation. Just two years after avoiding prosecution for a variety of crimes, some of the world's biggest banks are suspected of having broken their promises to behave. Oh, gee, I never would have guessed. <laughs> this makes me sick. The fact that this is new, I mean, it's news, but, but the fact that people are like, they broke their promises? Oh, my God. A mixture of new issues and lingering problems could violate earlier settlements that impose new practices and fines on the banks, but stop short of criminal charges, according to lawyers briefed on the cases. Prosecutors are exploring whether to strengthen the earlier deals, the lawyer said, or scrap them all together and force the banks to plead guilty to a crime. That's not going to happen because we never force banks to plead guilty to a crime. What do we do? We establish the formula. I was a recall coordinator. My job was to apply the formula. Here's the answer went to the windshield. Three points. A new car built by my company leaves somewhere traveling at 60 miles per hour. The rear differential locks up. The teenager's braces are wrapped around the backseat ashtray. Might make a good anti-smoking ad. The car crashes and burns with everyone trapped inside. Now, should we initiate a recall? The father must have been huge. You see where the fats burn to the seat with the polyester shirt? Very modern art. <laughs> Take the number of vehicles in the field, A, multiply it by the probable rate of failure, B, then multiply the result by the average out-of-court settlement, C. A times B times C equals X. If X is less than the cost of a recall, we don't do one. Are there a lot of these kinds of accidents? You wouldn't believe. Which car company do you work for? A major one. A major one. So anytime you hear about Wall Street getting hit with a fine, just know that the bank is laughing its face off because the fine means nothing. It's just a hiccup in their earnings report. We had to pay out the settlement, but don't worry. We made it back in 12 hours after paying it. <laughs> All right. Back to the TPP thing. I was like, why did I have anything in the show notes about TPP? Well, I did. And here it comes because there's this woman named Lori Wallach who for years, I've been following this woman for a long time. She works at Public Citizen and she's awesome. Public Citizen is a uh, public interest research group uh, run by Ralph Nader or, or started by Ralph Nader. And um, anyway, so she was on Democracy Now! talking about this TPP trade deal. And the, what they want to do is they want to fast track it. And I don't know if she talks about it in this clip I'm about to play, but fast track means that uh, Congress says, look, the president gets to decide these agreements, his trade representative, I don't remember who the trade representative right now is, but um, the trade representative basically gets to say, Congress has given me full authority to come up with this trade deal and sign off on whatever I think is best. Now, that's a mistake. Congress should not be doing that because just like with war, Congress is supposed to have the ultimate authority to decide 
how we do business with the rest of the world. These trade treaties need to go through Congress. Why? Because some people in the country might not like what's in the TPP, and their elected officials in Congress ought to be reviewing the elements of this trade agreement. But when Congress says fast track, that goes away. And there is no discussion in Congress. There is no review of anything. Instead, the trade representative just goes over and says, yep, we're good. Let's do it. And if workers in Missouri don't like it, they can suck it. Take guys, you suck it in, you suck it! I gotta play that. What is a mask? What a mask! What you gonna do? You gonna take out, you suck it, and you suck it! <laughs> take out, you suck it, and you suck it! Anyway, uh, let's listen to Lori Wach talk about why fast tracking is a bad idea. Well, the TPP, unfortunately, is really a delivery mechanism for a lot of the things McConnell and the Republicans like. So, for instance, it would increase the duration of patents for Big Pharma and, as a result, give them windfall profits but increase our medicine prices. It could roll back financial regulation on big banks. It could limit internet freedom, sort of sneak through the back door, the Stop Online Piracy Act, SOPA. And they love this. It would give special privileges and rights for foreign corporations to skirt around our courts and sue the U.S. government to raid our treasury over any environmental consumer health law that they think undermine their expected future profits, the so-called investor state enforcement system. Plus, it would have the NAFTA-style rules that make it easier to offshore jobs, making it easier to relocate to low-wage countries. So the, gr the sort of grotesque question is, why does President Obama <laughs> like the TPP? It's pretty clear why McConnell likes it. It was negotiated with the assistance of 600 corporate advisors, official corporate trade advisors in the U.S. The agreement has been the initiative of the Obama administration. It was started by Bush, but instead of turning it around and making it something different, the Obama folks picked it up and, frankly, have made it even more extreme. So the question really, in a way, is the Democratic Congress, the, the Democrats in Congress, and the public, including a lot of Tea Party conservatives, have plenty not to like. Oh, I forgot about the part of TPP where it bans by America, by local really bad agreement. So I, I could play the whole thing and I'd love to sit and listen to it again. But anyway, she makes a lot of really good points about how it's not a, a trade agreement, really. It's a it's a way of changing our laws and it's, oh, it's so messed up. So write to your elected officials, tell them to say no to the TPP agreement. And yeah. In other economic news, you're not insane. AT&T really is messing with you. Uh, according to the USA Today, the FTC recently declared AT&T slowed speeds of unlimited data smartphone users. So this whole thing about like, well, it seems like AT&T just being a jerk. It's not your imagination. like, And this is why net neutrality is so important. Because AT&T can do this, and they will do it 100 times as bad if net neutrality goes away. So here's from the USA Today. AT&T slowed the data speeds of millions of smartphone customers with unlimited data plans, in some cases by nearly 90%, the Federal Trade Commission charged Tuesday. The agency has filed a complaint in federal court charging that the nation's second largest wireless carrier failed to adequately disclose to unlimited data customers that AT&T reduces or throttles data speeds if customers reach a certain amount of data use in a given billing cycle. Which, that shouldn't happen! It's unlimited! Hello? Such throttling often made many common functions such as web surfing, GPS directions, and streaming video difficult or nearly impossible to use. Quote, AT&T promised its customers unlimited data and in many instances has failed to deliver on that promise, said FTC chairwoman Edith Ramirez. Quote, the issue here is simple. Unlimited means unlimited, end quote. Well, apparently not. Unlimited means whatever AT&T wants it to mean. <sighs> All right, quickly, we're at an hour. We've got to talk about education. Actually, we don't. There's no education news this week. I got nothing to say about it. I hate Scott Walker. There's your education news. Let's talk about some killer robots. Finally, robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. They look like they're dead. Okay, I don't actually hate they Scott. To be done. I'll just confirm that they're dead. I try to love so them like I love all of them. Affirmative. I poked one. It was dead. 
We can't become like the people that annoy us. We have to not hate people. And I don't mean that in an academic sense. I said that I hate him, and I'm trying not to hate him. I hate everything he does. Uh, As Paul Mooney says, I don't hate you. I hate your parents for having you. No, no, no. I'm trying not to hate people. I want to love everyone. I want to love the hell out of them, as someone said about Ferguson. I want to love them enough for them to realize the error of their ways. So, Scott Walker, please understand. I love you. You are my brother. We are one human family. But you're doing things that make my life a lot more difficult and the lives of other people. And it's not fair. And we have plenty of wealth in the state of Wisconsin. You don't need to take the rights of working people and teachers and nurses in order to balance your stupid budget, okay? <sighs> All right, moving on. Killer robots. Uh, Comet smells like rotten eggs and horse urine. Um, this is from India today. A comet in space apparently smells like rotten eggs, horse urine, formaldehyde, bitter almonds, alcohol, vinegar, and a hint of sweet ether. That's what the 67P Chirinurimov Gerasimenko comet stinks of. Scientists at the University of Bern in Switzerland said they had determined what the comet would smell like by analyzing the chemicals in its coma, the fuzzy head surrounding the nucleus, the metro.co.uk reported. They used one of the instruments aboard the European spacecraft, Rosetta, for the study. The spacecraft is preparing to drop a lander onto the comet's icy surface on November 12th. I guess this is the one that did land on the comet, which is an amazing uh, scientific achievement, and congratulations to the scientists who landed the Rosetta lander on the comet. I mean, landing a rocket on a comet, that's amazing. Congratulations and hooray. And also, change your shirt, dude. Come on, what are you thinking? All right, um, I guess that's it. Let's talk about some hip hop. I keep saying I'm going to do that special show on Radiolab, and I will. Someday, man, it's going to happen. But today I want to talk to you about Dem Atlas, who is this new rapper who, so far as I know, he's only released a little EP called the Charlie Brown EP, and it's awesome. It, he uses samples from Charlie Brown TV shows and stuff. It's really cool. I'm going to play you a little sample from a song of his called Franklin. Turn it up. Yo. My finger paints a portion but dream when I want the world to be when I see you close my eyes my weather's done it didn't take me seven days it only took me seven ways to calculate my position in time and space devil's breathing in my face while the violin is trying to play the violin you see the itsy bitsy clips in Europeans and cotton in Charlotte's level three fat ladies I'm told with the cuckoo's nest and later my bed full of roses and poses I'm just a poser supposedly doubling over about the blackout running up seeing your white spots block across my vision where I'm always living on the verge of being submerged in my dirt and we need I'm breathing fresh air, your fresh air Got all of this open space and nowhere to shit I guess the mess is stressed less now that I'm average More than normal, these cats where they snap back Stack formal, is it there's some sort of recipe to follow? Like being yourself was too big a c*** to swallow f- that you shallow Ah, that's right, when I'm wrong and you're wrong And I don't put it out, put my snout down in human excrement And pretend I'm breathing fresh air, your fresh air Got all of this open space and nowhere to shit I mean... Seriously, am I right? Like, damn, that guy is wicked. I love it. Oh, boy. All right, uh, let's talk about code of the week here, people. Friends, Romans, countrymen, let me your ears. Stop repenting because the ending is near. But don't panic, you can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention, you got to listen to hear. Oh, excuse me, this isn't quarter of the week. You don't come out every week. like quarter of the year, more like... Oh. Yes, thank you, annoying person who talks weird. Uh, this quote is from Nikki Giovanni. She's an African-American poet. She's awesome. You should totally read her books of poetry. Uh, in a 1984 essay, she said, quote, Everything will change. The only question is growing up or decaying. So let's all keep growing up, people. Resist decay. All right, that's it. Uh, show notes and links to everything in this podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, which is at fbesp.org slash synapse. My website is the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org, with links to music I've made and fiction I've written and multimedia and lots of other stuff, uh, including the book I wrote. You should buy my book. 
Um, yeah, shout-outs this week go to you, the listener, for sticking with us. Thank you so much for listening. You make it all worthwhile. Thanks to Stulek, Andy R., and Turtle502 for helping me to promote the show. Thank you to the student who asked for a new SingCast. Thank you to the Duchess, because I love you. And I don't have time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there's dumb stuff I forgot to cut out. I'm a very busy man. Deal with it. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thank you for listening, people. Please get in touch with feedback or questions. ESP at FBESP.org, or you can tweet me on Twitter at Duke Scath, D U K E S K A T H. I'm going to stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful.